0: ...reminding me there to, uh, to mention that one of our deacons is missing this morning, uh, Brother Merle. Merle, of course, had surgery on Friday, and uh, he was able to be home by Friday afternoon. He came through surgery well. He's doing fine. Libby, that's right, isn't he? He's good this morning. Still a little sore, she said uh, earlier today, but uh, he is doing well. So let's continue to remember Merle, and uh, hopefully he'll uh, be back with us very, very soon. Well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles with me. And let's open them up to the book of Romans, chapter 5. The book of Romans, chapter 5. Our focus this morning, as we continue working our way verse by verse through this uh, incredibly glorious letter, uh, is going to be verses 9, 10, and 11 but we're going to begin reading in verse 6. So our focus will be the last three verses of the passage, but we're going to read all six verses of the passage so that we can remember our context, remember what we're talking about. Uh, Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. To begin this morning, I want to take us back to a man who lived more than 450 years ago. This man's name was John Bradford. He's a great example of the kind of hope, joy, peace Paul has been describing in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And this is particularly true in the way that John Bradford met his death See, John Bradford lived in England and the Reformation had recently come to England and pastors like John Bradford were preaching the gospel. This was a very exciting time in the history of the church. The gospel and true Bible preaching had been all but absent from England for centuries and now people were being converted. The gospel was being preached. Eyes were being opened to the glories of Christ. And then King Edward VI, who had been crowned king when he was only nine years old, who appeared to be a true Christian, who under his reign, wonderful progress had happened with the spread of the gospel, King Charles VI, at 15 years old, died. And his cousin, Lady Jane Gray, who was also 15 years old, also a friend to true gospel preaching, she took the throne and nine days later was removed from the throne. And King Edwards' half-sister, Mary Tudor, a vehement Roman Catholic and an enemy of the gospel, took the throne. She imprisoned Jane Gray... Weeks later, had her executed. She immediately struck down the laws that protected Protestants from persecution. Preaching the true gospel now became illegal. And Bloody Mary earned her nickname as she brought many men, women, and even children to their deaths because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. With the accession of Queen Mary... John Bradford was no longer allowed to preach the gospel to his congregation. His worship services were now to be Catholic services. A new Roman Catholic bishop named Gilbert Bourne now had authority over his church. And when this new bishop, Mr. Bourne, came to preach to John Bradford's congregation, John Bradford would stand behind the bishop to keep the people from heckling him and treating him terribly. Well, during one very eventful sermon, someone threw a dagger at the bishop while he was preaching. The dagger missed the bishop, and immediately John Bradford came forward and addressed the crowd and told them that they must stop acting in such an ungodly way. John Bradford did not support Gilbert Bourne or the message of Catholicism that he was preaching but he helped the man to leave the building quickly after the sermon he helped him out of a back door led him to a grammar school nearby where he would be safe from the rioting crowd as he was helping the bishop out of the sanctuary one of the congregants supposedly yelled out you help the man that will help to burn you that evening In his own sermon, John Bradford reproved the congregation for the way they had treated the bishop. And nevertheless, three days later, John Bradford was arrested. He was charged with sedition. He was not the one who had thrown the dagger, but he was accused of having fostered and encouraged the attempt on the bishop's life. In fact the council noted how when John Bradford stood stood up on the stage and told the congregation to settle down they did settle down and that was proof in their minds that he was the leader of the riot and therefore he was the one to be held responsible for the way for the attempt on Gilbert Bourne's life. And so for the next 3 years John Bradford was transferred from prison to prison to prison, and we could go into detail about the conditions of those prisons. You know, we're talking about the uh, the fifteen hundreds, so these were not prisons like we have prisons today. These were terrible conditions. Uh, but it was on this day, January twenty second, fifteen fifty five, that he received the sentence of death by burning. How would you have responded to such a situation? What would have been going through your heart and your mind as you were sentenced to death for a crime you did not commit as you had been seeking to be a faithful minister of the gospel of Christ? One of the most remarkable acts that Bradford did during those days is that he wrote a letter to his mother asking her to forgive the men who were putting him to death. In fact, he encouraged his mother to pray for those who were bringing him to his death. He treated the prison guards with such kindness that they respected him. They trusted him. And even in this situation, we're told that Bradford was a remarkable example of peace and joy and hope. This is the kind of peace, hope, and joy that only comes from Jesus Christ. The kind that can look death, even wrongful death in the face, and be okay. Bradford wrote this, But when we shall be suffered to go out of the body and are taken into your blessed company, speaking to God, then shall we be in the fullest safety of immortality and salvation. Then shall come to us no sickness, no need, no pain, no kind of evil to soul or to body, but whatsoever good we can wish that we shall have, we will have." And whatsoever we loathe shall be far from us. O oh, dear Father, that we had faith to behold these things accordingly. O oh, that our hearts were persuaded thereof, and that our affections were inflamed with desire for them. At the end of June, 1555, in the place that we now call Trafalgar Square in London, Bradford and a 19-year-old Christian named John Leaf were brought out for execution. As Bradford was taken to the stake, people cried out words of love, words of farewell to him. His brother-in-law actually tried to run to him as he was being taken to the stake and we're told that the sheriff hit his brother-in-law over the head with a staff so that it split open and he had to run and find a surgeon. When Bradford was brought to the stake, he kissed the stake. And he cried out, O England, England, repent thee of thy sins, repent thee of thy sins. And then looking to the young man, John Leaf, who was about to die with him, he said these words, Be of comfort, good brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. And with that, the men were set ablaze, and they died. And my question to you, Mount Hermon, is this. Where do people like that come from? What produces men with that kind of security and peace in the face of terrible death? Where does someone find the hope to be able to look at death and embrace it as gain. Where does somebody find the kind of deep-seated joy that they can weather this kind of hurricane, the kind of storm that John Bradford was going through, and weather it with grace, whether it with dignity, whether it even with love for those who were hurting him? Paul knew something about suffering. Paul knew what it was like to be treated wickedly. And he has been teaching us in these verses that these kind of people come from a true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, Romans 5, 1-11, has been all about the blessings that come to those who truly know Jesus, who truly rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the context of these verses. Paul has been reminding us of those blessings that were ours the moment we first believed in Jesus and will be ours till the day we die and indeed all the way into eternity. These are the blessings that accompany faith. We used to be sinners under the wrath of God. And by God's grace, by God's grace, there came a point in our lives When we heard the gospel and we believed on the Lord Jesus, we resolved to follow Jesus. We resolved to be counted among His people. We resolved to rest in Him instead of our own works. And from that moment, our lives were forever changed. We have peace with God in the courts of heaven because of Jesus Christ We live in His grace. We have access into His grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have joy. And this joy that we have as Christians is rooted in our hope. Remember that from verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the future eager expectation that one day we will see God in all His glory. One day we will even share in the glory of God's holy character. That day is ahead. We live with that hope. And with that hope ahead of us, we can have joy even on a rainy, soggy Sunday morning. We don't have to worry about showing up on the last day only to find that our hope has been misplaced. This is a hope that will not put us to shame. We are certain of what lies ahead of us. We are certain of what God has promised because we are certain that God loves us. And if God loves us, He's not going to renege on His promises. How do we know God loves us? That's what verses 6 and 7 and 8 were about. God's Spirit, verse 5, pours into our hearts the love of God, how? Through this message of the cross of Christ, through this message of the Gospel. Mount Herman, it is seeing what God has done for us in the past that strengthens our hope for what He is going to do in the future. It is looking back at what God has done for us in the past that helps us have overflowing hope for what He has promised to do in the future. So for example, consider a child being left in the care of distant relatives. The child's father says to the child, I love you deeply. Child, I want you to live with me. But for now, I must go away. For now, I must go and make preparations. I promise, child, I will send for you soon. You will come and join me. We're going to live in a wonderful place. We're going to be very happy. But then the father leaves the child, and the child is left with the relatives. And as day after day passes, the child waits to receive word from his father that the time has come. He daydreams about what it will be like when he and his father are reunited in their new home. What will the house look like? What will my room look like? What kinds of exciting things will me and my dad do together? And these daydreams fill the child with excitement and longing for that day to come. But day after day turns into week after week. And then month after month... The child is still waiting. What is going to keep this child's hope and joy going? What will keep this child from becoming discouraged and giving up on the Father's promise to send for Him? Well, one thing that can keep this child's hope alive is memory. Remember what my dad said once did for me. Remember that, that time when, when He smiled as we were playing that game? Remember when I got stuck on the jungle gym and, and my dad came and rescued me? Remember this? Remember that? And the more the child thinks back about the way his father has loved him in the past, the more sure he is that his father's promise about the future is going to come true. Now, of course, in a fallen world, Sometimes dads don't keep their promises. Sometimes this is because they are sinners. Sometimes this is because things happen that are outside of their control. But it is not that way with the Lord God Almighty, whose throne is in the heavens and who does what He pleases. He has promised us a day when Jesus is coming again to take us to Himself. He has promised a day when we will dwell with him in a new heavens and a new earth. We are not to be discouraged because that day has not yet come. The more we think about what God has done for us in the past, the more we set our sights on the cross of Jesus. And remember the love of God shown for us at the cross. The more confidence we can have, the more hope we can have, the more joy we can have as we eagerly anticipate what He has promised. He has shown His great love for us. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore, assured of His love, we know that the promised day is coming. And there should be hope burning bright in our souls. That's how the logic of verse 9 and verse 10 works. This is the logic of hope. Verse 9 and verse 10 look to a great thing God has already done for us in the past and then says, in light of that great thing, surely this other future thing is coming. What was done in the past was the hardest of all. What was done in the past required incredible sacrifice. The Father bringing His Son to the cross. If God was willing to do all that, and that was the hardest of all, then surely what He has promised in the future is going to come true. That's the logic. Look at verse 9 and let's see it. Verse 9. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the first part of the verse is the premise about what happened in the past. We have now been justified by his blood. He's talking to Christians, so I have to say to you, is this you? Does this premise apply to you? If you are not a Christian, the glory of verse 9 and the glory of verse 10 are not your glory. This is not for you. It rests on the premise that you have been justified by the blood of Jesus, made right with God by trusting in Christ and what He did in His perfect life and His death on the cross. Jesus shed His blood that sinners would be made right with God, that our sins would no longer stand in the way. We can now have God as our Father and we can be His children. All that is required is that we look to Christ. We are justified, made right with God through Christ. But at what cost? At the cost of Jesus' blood at the cost of the sinless Savior experiencing the wages of sin for every person who would ever believe upon Him. If God the Father was willing to put His Son through so much so that you could be right with Him, do you really think on the last day, when God's judgment is unleashed on the earth, He's going to allow you to be condemned With the lost. Do you think that God went to such lengths to save you at the cross only to condemn you on the last day when His wrath is poured out on the world? Paul is telling us to remember the cross, to remember what God has done for you there, and in light of what God did for you there, have confidence about the future. Are you not sure, Christian? That God is going to save you on the day of wrath and bring you safely into paradise. What more does God need to do to show you that He loves you? What more does God need to do to show you that He has your best interest at heart? If He has sent His Son for you, if His Son died for you, if He poured out His wrath for your sin upon Christ, if He has brought you to faith in Him, are you really now going to quake in your boots and fear that at the last moment, at the last day, God is going to turn against you and cast you into hell? Paul says that doesn't make sense. Paul says the reason Christians live with such joy, the reason Christians live with such hope is that we are sure of what's going to happen on the last day. And the reason we are sure of what's going to happen on the last day is the logic of hope. God already did so many amazing, incredibly tough things to save our souls. He's not going to lose us then. The logic of verse 10 is very similar. So look at verse 10. For if while we were sinners, sorry, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So you see the premise in the first part of the verse. We see what happened in the past. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Hear that. While we were enemies, when we were not at peace with God, when God's wrath was upon us because of our sins, when we hated God, When we hated God's laws, when we wanted to live our own lives our own way and have nothing to do with God, when we were in that condition, God caused His Son to experience death for us. We were then reconciled to God. We were given peace with God through Jesus dying. And dear friends you understand that when He talks about death, He's not just talking about the nails that went through Christ's hands and feet. He's talking about the outpouring of His wrath against sin. He's talking about Jesus on the cross being forsaken by His Father. Jesus, who is the image of the Father. Jesus, who is the beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. Jesus, who draws all of His strength and joy and very existence from the Father on the cross, being forsaken by the Father. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? That is the hell that Jesus experienced on the cross. And He did it for us while we were yet enemies. Knowing the depths of the wickedness of our hearts. Now, if Christ was willing to do that, surely I have no reason to doubt that He is going to deliver me safely into the new heavens and the new earth. Note the two contrasts in verse 10. The first has to do with us, right? When Jesus went to the cross, we were still enemies. Now, when the last day comes, we will be those who are reconciled. When Jesus went to the cross, we were enemies. Now, we were reconciled. If Jesus was willing to die for His enemies, do we think He's going to forsake us now that we're His friends? Surely if Christ died for us while we were His enemies, there can be no limit to what He will do for us now that we are His friends, reconciled to God. It would be very foolish to think that Jesus treats His enemies better than He treats His friends. And So you see the logic. If He was willing to do so much for His enemies, do we really think He's going to let us down? Do we really think that He's going to prove Himself unfaithful on the last day? Toward his friends? Answer? <laughs> Absolutely not. Do you see why we have good reason for hope and joy, church? Do you see why a grumbling, complaining Christian is an utter oxymoron in a denial of the very theology we claim to believe? Okay. The second contrast in verse 10 has to do with Jesus, right? The work of bringing us peace with God required him to die. If Jesus was willing to do that, and he's not going to have to die to bring us safely into heaven, all he has to do is live. If he was willing to die, do we think that now he's not going to be willing to keep living for us? Right? If he was willing to lay down his life for us, do we think he's going to not do the easier thing, namely keep reigning for us, keep interceding for us, keep living for us in the presence of his Father? Of course he will. He lives as our shepherd. He lives as our king. He will lead us into paradise. And so the point of these verses is to take away all doubt and to show that our hope and our joy as Christians rests on a solid foundation. And then there is glorious verse 11. And this, my friends, is a fantastic verse. Verse 11, more than that. Because that's not enough. (laughs) All the glories that I've been teaching you in verses 1 through 10, all of those glories that are better than anything this world has to offer, that's not enough. There's even more reason that Christians rejoice. There's even greater grounds for happiness and joy. More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you see that word also? You see that word also in the verse? We also rejoice in God. Paul was reminding us that throughout these 11 verses, he's been speaking about joy a lot. In fact, he's mentioned some other things that we rejoice in. In verse 3, you see verse 3, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We never really left that theme. That's where we've been for the whole passage. Verse 4, he said that we who are Christians rejoice in our sufferings. And then he explained that that joy was connected to the first. We rejoice in our sufferings because our sufferings end up creating greater hope. And since we rejoice in our hope, we rejoice in our sufferings. previous sermon won't go back into that now, but you see how that works. So Paul has been talking about joy. Paul has been talking about joy in the Christian life. And now, more than all of these other sources of joy he's been speaking of, he speaks of one that is more than that. One that is on top of that. One that is not just the cherry on top, it is the best of all. What is the thing that we ultimately as Christians rejoice in? Namely, God Himself. We rejoice in God. We not only rejoice in the hope of one day beholding God's glory, we not only rejoice in the sufferings that He brings into our lives and the way He works through those sufferings for our good, but ultimately more than anything else, Christians find joy in God Himself. At the most fundamental level, here is a distinction between someone who is truly born again and someone who is not truly born again. Here is the distinction between the true Christian and the false Christian. A true Christian delights in God. A false Christian does not delight in God. And so I simply ask you this question. Where do you find your delight? Do you have joy in God? Do you delight in every part of His character? Does your heart swell when you think about who He is? We are surrounded in our Bible Belt culture by many who claim to be Christians who do not truly love God. They love what God can do for them. They love the way that they think God loves them and has made them the center of the universe. At the center of their hearts is them, and as long as God is about them, they will love God and serve God, but only for their sake. But if you say, do you love God in and of Himself for His own sake, apart from you, they don't really understand what you're talking about. They do not know what it is to delight in God Himself. I want to be careful as I say this because there is a wrong way to take it, but try and understand what I mean. There is even a sense in which the Christian can say, though God send me to hell, I will still love him because he is good and he is right. Even if God had not shown me grace, even if God did nothing for me, I now see. He is worthy of love anyway. He is worthy of my affection anyway. Even if all he brought to me was wrath and judgment, I have come to see that God is glorious and worthy of all that is good and right. Can you relate to that at all? Can your heart resonate with that kind of sentiment? I want you to take a test for a moment. This is uh, not my own. This is John Piper's acid test. To see whether or not you truly love God himself. To test to see whether you truly rejoice in him and not just what he does for you. Here's the first question. See how you would answer this question. Do you feel more loved when you think God is making much of you? Or do you feel more loved when you realize he's enabling you to make more of him? Do you feel more loved when you think God is making much of you or when you realize that He's enabling you to make much of Him? How about this question? When you think about the cross, is the cross in your mind a testament to how much you're worth or is it a testament to how righteous and glorious Christ is? I probably shouldn't say this, Michael W. Smith's song, Above All, about Jesus being on the cross. And in that moment, the cross is all about us, how we are above all. It's just bull malarkey. It's just the cross is not about how valuable we are. The cross is about how Jesus was everything we are not, righteous, obedient, faithful, even to the point of death. The cross is not a testament to our worth. If we are rejoicing in the cross because we think the cross is, saying, is God saying, look how valuable you are. You're more valuable than my son. If you think that's what's being said at the cross, then you're loving God because you think He loves you and it's still all about you. You're at the bottom of your own affections. That's not what the cross is about. The cross reveals the righteousness of Jesus and the lengths he was willing to go to to protect the holiness of God and the mercy of God. Romans 3, we saw it in our study of the gospel. The cross should lead us not to pat ourselves on the back about our worth. It should cause us to fall on our faces in the dirt in humility at the wonderment and the goodness of Jesus Christ and how He who is the image of God is everything we have failed to be and what an awesome grace that wretched sinners like us could be able to know a Messiah and Savior like Him. My favorite Piper quotes is that no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. If you've ever stood overwhelmed and speechless before the Grand Canyon, you know that there is such a thing as a very deep and a very rich kind of joy that can be found in marveling at something that is outside of yourself, that is bigger than you, that is grander than you, that is deeper than you. Maybe you've spent time looking out over the ocean and just being amazed. Maybe you've spent time looking up at a starry sky, especially in these winter nights and when the sky is clear, stars are just brilliant. And the glory of it strikes you. And you have this deep sense of joy that has nothing to do with your own self-worth. In fact, if anything, in that moment, you feel very, very what? Small. Right? In the same way, the gospel is ultimately about bringing us to God. It's about bringing us, who are small, to the marvel of marvels, to He who is the glory that our soul truly needs and desires. Salvation is God doing everything necessary for us to obtain eternal joy and satisfaction in Him. So here's another question to test yourself. Could you be happy in heaven if God was not there? Could you be happy in heaven if God was not there? Could you be eternally satisfied if there's no sickness, no suffering, no pain, no death, but there's also no God? Would that be okay with you? And would that be heaven to you? This will help you to see whether it is truly God who has your heart. Maybe you've been on a trip somewhere really wonderful and you had a great time at first. You were were enjoying the trip and yet in the end you found yourself deeply unhappy because as much fun as you were having, there was someone you really love, and they were not there with you and you were really wishing they were there with you. Every fun moment was tainted with an emptiness and a longing because maybe a spouse or maybe a child or maybe a friend that you truly love is separated from you. This is what it would be like for Christians if God were not in heaven. Heaven would not be heaven. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Christians have God at the center of their affections. He is the glory of all glories. We rejoice in Him above all. Now, notice, we're getting near the end, Paul says, second half of the verse, We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because it's primarily in Christ that we see God. It's primarily in Christ that we see everything we love about God. Jesus is the image of God. When we look at Jesus, we see the glorious character of God. In Christ, we see His righteousness. In Christ, we see His mercy. In Christ, we see His justice. In Christ, we see His love and His power and His wisdom. And so all of our rejoicing in God is ultimately connected to Christ. Who is it that opens our eyes to see the glory of God? It is Christ. Who is the one that changes our hearts so that we love this glory rather than despise this glory? It is Christ. Who is the one to whom we look to see the glory of God? It is Christ. Think about a box of chocolates. Okay, This is maybe a really dumb illustration. I don't know. We're going to try it. Try, think about a box of chocolates. And you open the box and there is an array of various kinds of chocolates there for you to eat. If you don't like chocolate, picture something you like to eat. Okay, it's supposed to be good, and sweet. Okay. And all of these various chocolates are the various ways that God reveals Himself, the various ways that, that He brings us to delight in Him. And so maybe we take one chocolate from over here in the corner and we put it in our mouths, and immediately our eyes brighten, and immediately it is sweet to our taste. And maybe that chocolate's like us looking at creation and seeing all that God reveals to us about His glory and creation, His power, His wisdom, His creativity. And then maybe we, we reach over and we take a, another chocolate. And this one is very sweet too, but it's sweet in a different way. Maybe this is like seeing the glory of God in His people, the way they love one another, the way they forgive one another and bear with one another. And so there's this whole box of chocolates and each one is a different way in which we see God revealed to us and it is sweet to our taste and we really enjoy it and on and on we go trying these different chocolates but there's that one that's in the very middle of the box. There is the one that is the most sweet of all. There is the one in which everything that made all the others great all comes together in that one chocolate. We put it in our mouth And we've never tasted anything better, and we know we never will taste anything better than that one. It's sheer paradise. Well, that's what it is like to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many other things in which God reveals himself, but it is only in Christ that the fullness of the glory of God comes together in perfect harmony and intensity. And as we walk with Christ and know Christ and see Christ and savor Christ, we rejoice in Christ. Ultimately, we are rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, is this a foreign language to you? Or is this your common experience? Do you know what I'm talking about? Has your heart been awakened to have this kind of of real, biblical, saving Christianity. Folks, this is true religion. A lot of people these days want to say that religion's a bad word. I trust Jesus. I don't like religion, but I like Jesus. This is religion. When, what religion used to mean. Okay. End of the verse. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. None of this, none of this awesome experience that we do not deserve would be possible or not for the Lord Jesus Christ making us right with God. Here we are, we are thirsty as can be. We may not even know we're thirsty. Well, no, we know we're thirsty. We just don't know where to look. And so we go over to here and here and here and we try a thousand different fountains trying to quench our thirst. What we need is God, the never-ending fountain of glory. He's over here. Not only are we not going to Him, we're chasing everything else and it's not sad. Satisfying, But even if we could come over here to the fountain, we're not allowed in. Why? Because he's holy and we're sinners. There is a no trespassing sign and trespassers will be shot if you come near. Right? What has Christ done? Christ, by his work, has not only opened our eyes to see the futility of all this other stuff, He's not only opened our eyes to see the fountain that is glorious, but He brings us to the fountain, and at the cost of His own death, His own life, through the cross, He opens the gate and brings us in. That's reconciliation. That's peace with God. That's what the gospel is all about. All right. Now what? How do I close this out? I think, first of all, I have to say, unbelievers, if you are here and you are not relating to what I, I don't... I, don't okay, I do care, but maybe you prayed a prayer, maybe you were baptized, maybe you're on a church roll. If you can't relate to what I'm talking about, if you don't know the deep joy of what I'm talking about, there is good reason to believe that you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be aware of that. You need to be alert. There should be alarm bells ringing in your ears. And the most important thing you could do is to run to Jesus in your heart this moment and to say, I know I don't deserve it. I know that I'm a sinner, but Lord Jesus, I call on you. Save my soul. Help me to trust you. And then, if you're serious about it, get serious about it. That is, start obeying what Jesus says. Because you can't say, I trust you, Jesus. And then he says something and you say, well, I'm not going to do that. So Jesus says, get into your Bible, get into your Bible. Jesus says, get into a church, get into a church. Jesus says, hang around godly people, hang around godly people. Trust Jesus enough to do what he says, and he will begin to develop that genuine joy and peace and hope in your heart that accompanies salvation. (coughs) Believers in this room, all I can say to, to you and to me is this. Shame on us for not being the most joyful people on planet Earth shame on us for not having a greater desire to look into these things. Paul prayed, I think Mike mentioned it in his sermon last week, the the Ephesians 3 passage, Paul prayed that we would have uh, the knowledge of that which surpasses knowledge, namely the love of God. Well, this is us trying to come to grips with a love that we can never really know. This is us trying to know what is beyond our knowledge. Church, let's pursue these things. Let's live in the reality of these things. Let us look forward to the day that is coming with great excitement, and may it make us very useful in this world now. Amen.